Why don't you grab your Bible and open up to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're looking at verses 8 through 11 today. The sermon title is Be Sober-Minded and Alert. Now, if you don't have an English Bible of your own, we want you to be able to have one, so please visit the Connect Corner at the end of the service, and they'll be glad to give you one. And also, if anybody wants just help in understanding how to read the Bible and apply it, let them know at the Connect Corner, and we'll follow up with you. But you can also grab a Bible right in the pew there in front of you and just open up to page 1078, and that'll be where you'll find our text for today. I don't know if you realize it, but every morning on Sundays, people come early to get things ready. Some people come early to get the back hall ready for the children, to set up chairs and the games and all the activities. Other people come and they clean up the front entryway. They, they use a mop and they clean up the gifts that have been left overnight by people who didn't want to use the litter uh, bins around. So we're thankful for people who, many ways and different, um, with different energy they serve, and we're thankful for them. And if you're still looking for a place to serve, we'd love to be able to direct you to ways here at the church you can help build up this body. Again, just check in with the Connect Corner. Let's start out in prayer, and then we'll, we'll dive into what the Lord has for us. Father, you are the God of all grace, and what an incredible truth that is to know about you. It means you never run out. You never are tired of giving grace. It is in your nature to give grace. And because we do not deserve your favor, how grateful we are for your abundant grace. We sing about it being amazing, and it is. And it is beyond amazing. It is powerful. It is exactly what we need. It is timely. You demonstrate your grace most powerfully for us in the love that you showed when Christ died on the cross for us. By your grace alone, we're saved, and it's also your grace that keeps us in the faith. Lord, I know that many times I neglect to think about that grace, and I, I forget to thank you for your grace, and so we do confess that to you and ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you would help us to not be neglectful of asking you for your grace and to seek it out. There's so many different ways that you use your grace to help us stand firm in the faith. We want to take advantage of those means of grace, so help us to see that today. And Lord, I do pray too that as the enemy is, he's evil and he's active, that today we'd be alert and aware of what he's up to and we would trust that your grace is more than sufficient to help us stand against his attacks against our soul. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, amen. In the church today, there are many people who seek to know God through experiences. They wouldn't say that they're anti intellectual, but it's a form of being, uh, preferring an experience to using the mind and the intellect to think through things. They're not anti-academic, but many people would seek things such as rituals and ceremonies to try to experience God. Other people, they seek to experience God by action. They want to change society. They want to be involved in politics. Other people look for experiences through emotional experiences like um, music and uh, signs or wonders. But one thing we can never get away from is that God intends that his people connect to him primarily through our minds. And as our minds are transformed, what happens is our emotions, our affections are stirred up for God. And then that causes our will to be steeled and, and fixed and desiring to follow God. But the fact is that to reject understanding who God is is not a virtue at all. 
We need to engage our minds every week that we come together at uh, the church, and especially as we're under God's word. Psalm 32 verse 8 says, God speaking here, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. It means we need to be ready to receive instruction. We need to be able to understand what does the mean by the way that we should go. And then he says in verse 9, be not like a mule or a horse who have no understanding. Again, there's no virtue in not pursuing understanding and engaging our minds. The job of the preacher is not to make you feel something. The job of the preacher is to trust the Holy Spirit will stir your hearts as he opens up God's word. Over time, as one sermon comes and and crashes against your soul, like the waves of the ocean crashes against the shoreline, slowly that shoreline is transformed and it's reshaped into exactly what God wants it to be. Sometimes it happens in one powerful moment when God speaks through his word, but often it's just week after week as the tide keeps hitting against your soul. Psalm 119 verse 130 expresses the preacher's goal. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. The the preacher seeks to simply unfold God's word, trusting the Holy Spirit will illuminate it into our souls and give understanding. And that will begin a a transformation of our thoughts and our attitudes. It will stir up mighty affections and glad and godly living. It turns us into the most joyful people because we understand deeply who our God is. For this reason, it should be our delight to come to God's word, to seek him for understanding. Week after week, we we are continually exposed to error in the world. In fact, all week long, it's coming at you in many different ways. But one week, one day out of the week, we get to gather to have God's word wash over us and change the way that we think, to refresh us, to restore us. It'll equip us. It'll transform us. And that's why we want to be willingly welcoming God's word into our lives, into our souls, because that is how we'll be strengthened, as we'll see, for an incredibly dangerous life that we live. Now, if you're wondering, is there another way that maybe would be more enjoyable than listening to a preacher speak to me for minute after minute? There, There may be other ways, but... God has singled out preaching his word as a primary means to transform us. Now, if you're wondering what that looks like today, why that is, I think our text will give you reasons why you want to pay attention, why you want to rally your thoughts and focus on what God has for us. That even when the preacher is foolish and stumbles over his words, you'll still say, there's treasure here. I want to know it. I need this. My life depends on it. I hope that you'll find that Peter has compelling reasons for you why you need to bring your mind and your heart and all of you to this moment of our worship. I've prayed for you. I've prayed for this church all week that God's word would accomplish its purpose in spite of what seems like a foolish thing to do to stand up and speak at people for an extended period of time. But I'm confident God's spirit can do amazing work among us. 
We're going to go to God's word now and to read it so it's fresh in our minds. I invite you to stand with me and follow while I read 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 8 through 11. And this is Holy Scripture. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him. Firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered for a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. The law of the Lord, it's perfect. It revives our soul and welcome it today. You may have a seat. An amazing text. As you'll notice by the way that I pronounce that one word, I have a slightly bit of an accent. I say adversary. I'm not going to try to say it your way lest I insult you. So just we'll get that out there up front that I may be uh, saying that a bit differently. But as we look at this text, I want to inform you of the big idea. This is what our, our text, I believe, is about. In 1 Peter 5, 8 through 11, it leads to three godly mindsets so that you will think rightly during any circumstance. Three godly mindsets. The first one is think rightly by remaining sober, the first part of verse 8. Then there's think rightly by resisting Satan, the second part of verse 8 through verse 9. And then thirdly, think rightly by resting securely in verses 10 through 11. Remember, Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are feeling the heat. The world is turning against them. In fact, turning them in, in some cases, to prison. They're experiencing rejection by people who they used to enjoy their company. They're experiencing open hostility. And through Peter, the Holy Spirit wants these Christians to know God is in complete control of even this time. His purpose is good, and it's not necessarily to change your circumstances, but rather he wants to use these hard circumstances to change us, to think rightly. Because when you think rightly, then you love deeply, and then you act courageously. So the first way that we're supposed to think rightly is by remaining sober. So look back at verse 8, that first part. It says two commands. Humble yourself. I'm sorry, back in verse 8. Be sober-minded and be alert. Both of these commands are the same verb tense, and that verb tense, it, it communicates urgency, top priority. Why? Well, as we read, there's a real and present danger. So to be sober of spirit is to maintain a heightened vigilance. Be on the lookout. Your life depends on it, but so do those around you. Now, this isn't the first time that Peter's talked about this need to be sober-minded. You could go back to chapter 1 and verse 13. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this idea of being sober, it's not a difficult metaphor to understand. I think we've seen people who are not sober. When people drink in excess, they, they pass out. The, the idea behind this be sober-minded is to be awake, to stay awake spiritually. It's to exercise self-control like what athletes practice, to keep themselves in shape, to keep their minds sharp and alert on the game. 
They can't allow intoxication to come into their bodies where they won't play to their full capacity. So to be sober in spirit requires self-control. And that's one of the fruit of the spirit is to produce that in us. Now, it's hard to know when that line of intoxication is crossed. It's one of the deceptive nature of things like alcohol is you're not quite sure when you've crossed that line. So many people wisely stop before they get there. They know this is too many. I'm going to stop here to be safe. But Christians sometimes aren't as cautious about the world around them. We're not as alert to how the intoxicating influences of the world are slowly creeping us in, creeping into us and causing us to think incorrectly. That's why we're called to a life of holiness, of purity. It's a, it's a life of being separated or unmixed for the things that can cloud our thinking. Paul talked about this in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. He said, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. So beloved, you're a day person. That means that you're always seen. That means your life is out there in the open. People are watching. That should be some incentive in us to remain sober. We don't want to look foolish, but we also don't want to lead people astray into our folly. I just wonder, are you known as being a faithful person? Are you known as being consistently in the word of God? One who loves with abandon those around him or her. We want to be people whose our life aligns with the Bible and not the culture around us. And just thinking about that is it's sobering, isn't it? To realize people will judge what our Savior is like by the way that those who are saved interact in this world. The Bible doesn't leave us to guess how to be sober-minded. There are many passages we could look at. One that I go to is in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It helps us out. Listen to what he says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, what is acceptable and perfect. It begins by considering how merciful God has been to us. His mercies are new every morning, so you can't run out of things to think about. The sober-minded person considers those mercies and then responds with a whole life submission to God. There's a joyful, there's a daily sacrifice of your entire self, your intellect and your emotions, your body itself given to the Lord for his pleasure. But the key is in the mind. He says, be transformed by the renewal of your Mind. We must have our minds renewed by Scripture. The, the affections, they will follow. They'll be rightly ordered when the mind is renewed. So sober-minded understanding, it leads to total transformation into the likeness of Christ. So we need to be sober-minded. But also it says to be alert. It's the word watchful. I like this word in particular because in the Greek, it is my name. It, my name is Greg or Gregory, and the word is Gregoreo. It means to be alert, aware of your surroundings. It's one thing to stay awake. It's another thing to be on the watch, looking carefully for any ways that the enemy is coming, giving your full attention. Now, as Peter wrote this, he must have remembered what had happened in the garden just an hour before the, the mob came to arrest Jesus. 
Matthew 26, 40 says, Jesus came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me this one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter had fallen asleep on duty, and he did not want that to happen again. So he was calling all the Christians to remain alert. It can so easily happen. Very few people plan to fall asleep at the wheel, but they do because suddenly, without thinking about it, they have fallen asleep. The United States Army Ranger School is known to be one of the most challenging military schools training programs in the world. Less than half of those who enter into it succeed, but active rangers have said that compared to ranger school, combat was easy. So there are 61 days of training. You'll average about three hours of sleep a night. You're given two meals. It works out to be about 2,500 calories. Most of the trainees burn over 5,000 calories a day with all the work they're asked to do. Many will actually fall asleep standing up. They, they do crazy things to stay awake. Even some will put hot sauce into their eyes so that they won't close them. Because if they're caught falling asleep, they could be immediately dismissed from the program. They must stay awake, whatever it takes. In the same way, Christian, we must stay awake. What are you doing to help yourself be alert? So what keeps you spiritually alert? Have you thought about that? Or in another way to ask the question is, what dulls you spiritually? When you, when you come to the Lord's Day worship time and you've had a late night and you've spent your time enjoying other pleasures, are you ready and sharpened to come and hear the word of God? So we must dedicate ourselves to eating, to drinking, to breathing in spiritual truth so we can stay alert. We must expand our capacity to take it in so we'll be most prepared, not just on Sunday morning, but every day of the week. So these dual commands, they're so severe and intense, it means there's a great danger coming. But we want to understand that if we're going to think rightly in any circumstance, then we need to remain sober. And I want to call your attention to this right now because what we're going to go to next, you need to be alert for. As we speak about our enemy, I have no doubt he'll seek in and try to distract us. Things may happen just to get you off of this. So we must focus our minds and discipline ourselves even now because a second godly mindset that you need is to think rightly by resisting Satan. Look at the rest of verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Why should we be sober and alert? Because this is happening right now. Your adversary is out there. Now, in many cultures, especially in the West, Satan, the devil, is presented as a cartoonish man with horns and a red suit and a tail. Not something you really take seriously or are worried about. But we need to be worried about him. He doesn't appear always evil and vile. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says, he disguises himself as an angel of light. He's intelligent. He's cunning. And he rarely shows us what he's actually like. One pastor noted that he often presents himself as very religious, dignified. He endeavors to approach you subtly and winsomely so that you don't recognize the reality of who he is. So we must stay sober and alert because he is dangerously hostile. 
His name means destroyer. He's accuser. He's constantly putting the Christian community at danger. And notice his name. He is the devil. It's not just a title. It's a meaning of slanderer. It's the, the Greek version of the Hebrew Satan. It's the same name. And it lets us know what his primary goal is. He seeks to slander and separate and alienate God from man. So his, his primary goal is by doing that to lead us to eternal destruction. He's intent on driving a wedge between us and God through temptation to sin, through accusing man daily before God and saying, you don't want them, God. They're miserable. Cast them out. And he's also constantly opposing God's plan of salvation. The Bible tells us that he is the ruler of this world and that makes him the commander of a hostile and powerful kingdom. In one place in the scripture, he's called Beelzebul, which means the prince of filth and refuse. His backstory is, is rather interesting. We get a picture of it in Ezekiel 24, verses 12 and 13. So he began as a majestic creation of God. It says, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And then God tells us what happened next in verses 14 and 15 of Ezekiel 24. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. He was a guardian cherub. They're assigned specifically to be around the holiness of God, to, to act as um, sentinels, protectors of that. And he was the greatest of them all. He's not God's equal. He's not like the yin and the yang. He is created and he's under the creator. But as the chief angel, something happened to him. Verse 17 of Ezekiel 24 goes on. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of splendor. It was as if he looked at God's glory reflecting off of himself and he began to think it, it was his own glory. He began to be enamored with God's beauty and thinking he was beautiful, that it was coming from him. As a chief angel, he was created to do what all creatures are supposed to do, to glorify God. But he became proud instead, thinking himself better than God. Isaiah chapter 14 explains what happened in his mind, what he was thinking Verses 13 and 14. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. A beloved pride is a satanic, satanic thing. It was what led to the first sin and it leads to all sins afterwards. Though he was designed to glorify God, seeking God's glory instead became his passion. He wanted it for himself, and he, he corrupted a third of the innumerable angels, and they joined in his rebellion. We could go to the last book of the Bible to find out more about the story. In Revelation 12 and verse 7, it describes this battle that happened in heaven. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. 
And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So he's cast down by a more powerful angelic force, and he's forced into our level of existence. And he's actively seeking to ruin humanity ever since. He began at the temptation with Adam and Eve in the garden. And then here in verse 8, Peter tells us that he is still seeking to ruin mankind. He's like a roaring lion. He's prowling around. See, his full-time vocation is to hunt down Christians and to chew them up and spit them out. This fits right along the lines of what Jesus told us about the devil in John 10.10. He's described this way as a thief who comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. You get a sense of what this prowling is like in Job chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered to the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. Satan wasn't going on a sightseeing tour. He was seeking out people to devour, and he had his eyes set on one man in particular. But the question is, why is he roaring? Doesn't that give himself away? Well, interestingly enough, nature could point to some various reasons why lions roar. Did you know that if a lion were to roar here at TCM, you could hear it five miles away? That means you'd hear it in Nedlam, you'd hear it in Waddington, you'd hear it in Skellingthorpe, you'd hear it in Washingboro. The roaring also shows the strength of the animal. A lion's roar can hit 114 decibels. It's the same as a chainsaw being amped up. The roaring shows dominance over challengers. It's used to scare off intruders. Roaring provides the pride with commands, instructions, warning about danger. A roar will coordinate a hunt, telling the lions where to go. It also will contain the prey because they hear the roar and they're paralyzed. They don't know where it's coming from, so they they try to hunker down and, and hide in the brush, but the lion is coming. These Christians that Peter was writing to, they were hearing the roar of the lion. It was meant to intimidate them. And as the prince of the earth, he has an amazing resource available to him to manipulate unbelievers to afflict Christians. So his roar was meant to intimidate these Christians with the thought of suffering is coming. And it tempts them to doubt God's care for them. What's interesting is in the Gospels, demons, right before they were cast out by Jesus, they screamed as if to intimidate those who heard them to be fearful of them, even though they were vanquished. The same way, Satan is a defeated foe, but he wants to leave a terrifying impression as he goes. So the devil, he knows that Christians, they are sealed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In other words, he cannot possess them or gain mastery over them. He can do nothing about your eternal destination, but he can wreak havoc on your faith. He, he wants to destroy your testimony so that if you are named the name of Christ and people know about your dark secrets, it'll defame God and they'll want nothing to do with him because of you. One thing that he's not seeking after, though, are unbelievers. He's not seeking unbelievers because he already has control over them. Satan deals with non-Christians by blinding their spiritual eyes. And every unbeliever is enchained, he's, in, he's imprisoned in Satan's dark domain. 
2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4, tell us about his work. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Friend, until you repent of your sins, turn from them and believe in Jesus Christ, you are spiritually blinded. You don't understand how great and how glorious our God is and all that he is for us in Jesus Christ. And so the devil, he is perpetuating a, a global ignorance about who God is and about who he is. He's perpetuating unbelief. He's perpetuating false religions because he's happy for people to go into religiosity. He wants to help people continue in their love of sin. And then the gospel comes and you're sitting in church and suddenly you realize what have I done against this glorious God? And God shines a light so brightly and powerfully on your soul that you see him and you behold him and you escape the clutches of Satan. But until that moment, the whole world is trapped into what John Bunyan described as vanity fair. It's a place where you're dominated by the desires of the flesh. I feel it, so I want it. You're dominated by the desires of your eyes. I see that. I, I want it. You're dominated by the pride of life. I see me. I want everyone to love me. And these three things keep all people trapped. I love how Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, describes the former life of Christians, but it's sobering to think this is the current life of unbelievers. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Oh, friend, we don't want you to live like that anymore. Will you come to Christ today? Turn to Jesus, you'll find his grace abounds to even you, the chief of sinners. But this devil, he's, he's after Christians in particular to devour them, and he wants to destroy their character through temptation. J.C. Ryle, an English pastor from the 1800s, he said, the enemy didn't tempt Adam and Eve to murder, to steal, or to lie. He tempted them to question the word of God, and his tactics haven't changed. He still asks us, did God really say We've got to go back to God's word and say, indeed, he did. I must stay alert and watchful because Adam and Eve, they had one thing that I don't have. They had sinless perfection. I'm already at a disadvantage because of that part of me that is drawn to sin. So to get you to fail, Satan masterfully will sweet talk you just as easily as he'll threaten you. But he's out to devour us. And why, why would God allow this? Doesn't he care for us? Well, of course he does. And it's helpful to think through the reasons why God would allow this. Remember that God allowed Satan to devour Job, but he had to get permission. And he couldn't go one inch beyond what God had placed as limits. And in the end of this whole incredible book, Job saw clearly how glorious God is. Peter was given over to Satan to be sifted so that he would then be able to turn and strengthen other Christians. 
Paul had a thorn in his flesh that he cried out three times to be removed, but it was there to crush his pride. So God uses Satan for his good purposes. One, it it teaches Satan in the demonic realm that God's strength and wisdom are superior to that of Satan. Like Peter, God uses Satan's attacks to make Christians stronger. Like Job, God uses those attacks to make us trust God more deeply. When Christians go astray, Satan will be directed to sometimes even take their life so they will not go so far as to forfeit their eternal salvation. Other times, people watch those who are being given over to this horrific treatment and have given over to their sins, and they they realize, I do not want to follow that, and God uses that work of Satan to keep other Christians safe. But we must always remember that however fierce he may be, he's under God's restriction and under his wise and sovereign plan. Satan and his demons, they, they want to be involved in our lives, and they'll find ways in, but the end of Satan's attacks will always accomplish God's purposes. In other words, Satan unwillingly serves God's good purposes in your life. So this is the devil. He's an adversary. Look back at verse 9. What do we do about this? Resist him standing firm in the faith. This is an urgent command like the other two. It's do this quickly and constantly considering your enemy. You cannot be passive in this. Now, over the last 50 years, there's been an influx of extra-biblical teaching on what is called spiritual warfare, about how to resist the devil. It was fringe teaching at first, and it slowly has become more mainstream. And it's the point where few even question whether it's biblical or not. One leader who singled himself out as being an expert, he said that without his teaching, Satan will eat you for breakfast. Really, is that true, that without his teaching, we're that much at risk? The, the, the spiritual warfare movement will bring forth ideas that are not taught in the Bible. Things like there are spiritual, territorial strongholds that we need to break and demolish. They, they sometimes will teach that behind every sin there's a, a spiritual being, a, a demon. So there's a, a demon of drunkenness. There's a demon of lust, of jealousy and greed. And what this does is it takes away the help that you need. The Bible says the remedy is to repent of your sin and trusting in Christ. But they say, no, you're a victim and you simply need to be delivered by being prayed over. That's not what the Bible teaches. Christians are trained to bind and interrogate demons. Uh, One woman that I knew, she was a friend of ours and then she had a, a bad dream and realized that my wife was in fact bringing Middle Eastern demons into her home and their children are having nightmares because of my wife's demons. And she said, I then trapped the demon, I interrogated the demon, I discovered its plans, and so that means that you have to leave our life. And I thought, well, that's a lot to come up with by talking to a demon. The Bible never talks, tells us to talk to demons. Their whole way of dealing is in lies. Why would we trust anything that they say anyway? Friends, you see that this is folly? This is not how you treat powerful, intelligent, and evil beings. Scripture does not teach us to speak to them, to command them, to banish them, to rebuke them, or to bind them. There is no spiritual power in shouting or raising your voice. You don't have an advantage by angrily rebuking a demon. The name of Jesus is not meant to be used like a a magic saying that somehow can give you a one-up on a demon. 
if we supposedly can bind Satan and his demons, then how long does that binding last? Is it good for just you or does it go out for other people as well? Is it permanent or is it just temporary? If people are binding these spirits, then why are several people in different parts of the world binding the same spirit, but then he's there and he's here at the same time? When we look at this idea of binding and casting out demons, most of that comes in the narratives like the Gospels and Acts. Peter, he cast out demons. He's given authority by the Lord Jesus Christ. But what he did and what he knows about that is nothing like what the spiritual warfare people teach us today. So Christ gave this power to the apostles as part of being an apostle. And it's an example for us to look at, but when we're given instructions on how to be as a church, we're never taught to do these things. It's not a power that we have. So this is not for all Christians. Or Peter here would not simply say resist him. He would say cast him out and bind him, but he doesn't say that. Instead, he says actively resist him. How? The second part of verse 9 continues, firm in the faith. This is how you resist Satan, not by taking him head on, but you anchor yourself down into the truths of God by being strong in the faith. Now, the two aspects to this. First, the faith is a way of speaking about all the truth of Scripture, the thing on which we are building our life. Actively resisting requires knowing sound doctrine, knowing what the Bible teaches. And as you know the truth, you will discern easily the devil's lies and his way of deceiving us. But secondly, being firm in the faith refers to personal trust in God. The devil, he wants to confuse you. He wants you to think that God is not trustworthy. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. He he wants you to doubt God's promises. And so you resist the devil by saying, I'm going to believe what God has said regardless of how I feel, regardless of what you may be telling me. We resist by being firm in the faith, which means knowing God's written word. This is what tells us all about who God is, and it helps us to trust him. It helps us to grow in our love for him and our love for one another. So, Resist him by standing firm in this. Now, there's clarity about what standing firm looks like in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 5. Paul writes here, he says, For we walk in the flesh, but we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So there's a spiritual warfare going on. He's talking about it. Our weapons, though, aren't guns or knives. They're spiritual weapons. But what is it that we're fighting against here? Not that the demons directly were fighting against arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. So what do we do? Well, to use Peter's command, he says, resist the devil. And then to bring in 2 Corinthians, resist the devil by taking every thought captive. You see, the battlefield is the mind, and the battle is to believe truth. There is no physical strategy or verbal technique to make Satan submit or run. That's fighting in the flesh. But when you resist the devil by being firm in the faith, God will deliver you. So we we know how to obey Christ because of what the Bible says. We know how to avoid speculation and and stick to what God has said. And in that, we will not be deceived. What's interesting is Peter's words are almost verbatim said in James' epistle. In James 4, 7 through 8, he says almost the same thing, but he adds a crucial truth. He says there, 
Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and here it comes, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So submission to God, humbling yourself to him, draws you to God, draws God to you. And does Satan want to stay around when you're that close to God? Not on your life. That's how you resist him, and he flees, because God is your defender. You don't need to rebuke or bind him. There's one more clarity we can get about resisting from the epistle, Ephesians chapter 6. We're told there to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And here's how we do it. By putting on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What's interesting is the armor is all defensive except for one piece. The sword of the spirit. The word of God. Isn't that what Jesus used to vanquish the devil when he was being tempted in the wilderness during his fast? We too can use the word of God to wield it to get our minds saturated in God's truth. Later in that chapter 6 of Ephesians and verse 18, it says, we put this on through active and consistent prayer. Prayer has got to be part of this, not to pray to command Satan to leave, but to pray that our minds and our hearts would be kept safe in Christ Jesus. We can confidently trust God. We don't need magical formulas. Well, verse 9 gives us one other way to resist, and it's kind of unexpected, at least it was to me. He says, knowing, resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Lions don't catch prey by going after the entire herd. They isolate one, and then they together get that, that one animal down. When you keep to yourself, you're an easy target. That's why I think about those who are watching from home who can't come. You may feel alone in that moment. And what we're advised to do is to remember you are part of a brotherhood. You're part of a a group of people who are all undergoing this. You're not alone in this. And that should remind us that God cares for everyone and he cares for you as well. Solidarity with suffering Christians actually is essential to resisting the devil. Because you know you're not a victim. You're not being singled out for some unnecessary punishment by God. God is watching over you as he is over all the Christians in the world. What's interesting is this word, being experienced by others, is better translated as this is being accomplished in others, which means God is doing something through this. What he began, he will finish in you. So it's not about surviving the the struggle, but it's about Trusting God has a great purpose for you during this time. And Satan will unwittingly bring this about on God's behalf for you. It's good to memorize God's promises about how he cares for those who are suffering. Because this will help you to stay alert how to be mindful and praying for others throughout the world. So thinking about where we're at in this text, think rightly by remaining sober. And then you'll be ready to resist Satan. Two more, one more mindset that we want to look at that's resting securely. And look at verse 10. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. So the prowling devil, he's looking around. Who is, who's sleepy? Who's nodding off? Who's drifting from the community? Who could I devour today? 
And, and in his prowling, he growls and he roars to get you to think about him and his power and what he might do to you, the suffering he might bring, instead of focusing on the God of what? All grace. It's a resource that'll never run dry. Every grace comes from God and God alone. God in his kind and his graciousness gives us favor. You can't merit this. You can't earn it. But it's more than just a kind favor toward you. It is a power that protects you. The the lion's roar is intimidating. It's meant to make you think about the lion, but God's grace and thinking about that shifts our attention back to where our Savior stands. He stands above and victorious to this prowling lion. And it reminds us that Christ has defeated him because grace is greater than all our sin. Do you realize that Satan has no eternal power over you? The only thing that gets you into hell is unforgiven sin. Satan can't cast you there. But Satan wants you to think only about his power that he has over you. He's the accuser. He's seeking to hold Christians down under the guilt of their failures. And so when the devil reminds you of your past, remember God's promises for your future. He called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Oh, beloved, Satan might roar for a few decades, but Christ is going to roar over you for eternity saying, he is mine. She is my daughter. You cannot have her. Back in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, it describes the decisive way that the God of all grace has acted. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And no demonic roar can undo that, beloved. You're safe. His eternal glory, it's not just endless, but it's imperishable. It's untainted. And it's altogether satisfying. It's divine glory. And it's exclusively in Jesus Christ. There's no other way to come to the Father than through the Son, You can never come to Christ, though, apart from the grace of God that grants you the faith to believe and to repent. This is the true grace of God on which you are standing firm. And you will stand firm as you contemplate the ways that God's grace keeps coming to you. And you keep it in mind, though the suffering is intense, and you remember it's only for a little while. It's only for a little while. There's an eternity of glory that's coming yet. That's not, calling it a little while isn't to diminish the reality and the pain of it. But it means this, that after the night, there is coming an eternal dawn that the sun will never set on for you in heaven. Peter spoke about this back in chapter 1, verse 6. He said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The rejoicing he was talking about is rejoicing in your future inheritance. An inheritance that is imperishable, it is undefiled, it is unfading. And no lion can take that away from you. Knowing the end of what Christ is going to do keeps you firm in the faith. You, You understand that he's accomplishing something glorious through this little while of suffering. And then you you appreciate that God is accomplishing something magnificent instead of growing angry or bitter about why he left you in this time. 
Now, God's grace acts in four similar but specific ways, and they come in rapid fire. You see the first one there? He says that he will restore you. He will make you whole. He'll give you an undivided heart so you will eventually live in perfect harmony with God's will. Secondly, he will establish you. It's a promise to strengthen you to stand firm. He's going to fix truth around you like an immovable buttress. Nothing can break what God establishes with his grace. Thirdly, he will strengthen you with the promise to make you strong to resist even the devil. You will stand your ground when the lion roars. He will support you. It's a promise that he will ground you in the truth of God's word. Like what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house in the rock. The rains fell. The floods came. The winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Oh, compared to God's grace, the devil's threats are like a tiny kitten meowing at you. Oh, do you, do you hear the, the lion of Judah and his powerful roar? And this is what he does. These four truths build up like a crescendo, drowning out what the devil is trying to do. And so when he brings a Category 5 hurricane trial against your soul, and you're being bent almost to the point of being broken, all your leaves are stripped off. When it leaves and you ask, how is it that I'm still standing? Why is it that I'm still here? And you say, because God's grace is stronger than anything the enemy can, can bring, and God himself will keep you. That's why Martin Luther, Luther wrote, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Doth ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. And he wants to anchor us in this place of secure rest. That's why he finishes with this incredible statement in verse 11. To him be dominion forever. This is a victory that God has over all creation. Dominion means God wields a mighty hand on your behalf. So, beloved, celebrate. There's not one inch of the universe of which, over which Christ does not say mine. Nothing is outside of his control. Not your suffering. Not this world that's set against God. Not even the devil and his demons. And this dominion is forever. There's no end to it. Not in duration or quality. It is an unsaleable sovereignty. If God is for us, then who can be against us? There's no better ending than what Peter writes. Amen? It is true. Keep this in your heart and your mind. And amen is an invitation to worship. It's an invitation to go back to the table and reflect on what God has done. So, are you alert? Are you sober-minded? Is your mindset being changed that now you know how to resist Satan biblically? Are you resting secure in all that God is for you in Christ Jesus? Remember that he will accomplish all of his good purposes for you. Amen? I want the music team to come back up, please, and we're going to sing this incredible hymn. Though Satan should buffet, that means to hit you and pummel you. Though he should buffet, if trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. As we sing this song, let's prepare ourselves for communion.